So Money Episode 701, Ask Farnoosh with special co-host, Danielle Robinson. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. Friday, March 9th, 2018, we have officially crossed the episode 700 threshold. We are 701 episodes into the podcast. Can you believe it? This little show that started in 2015 is now, well, is, is old by all measures, <laughs> uh, but, but feels very young and fresh still in my, in my world. And I hope to you too. And one way that we try to keep things a little, you know, new and exciting is shifting the show from time to time. Of course, if you remember, we went from seven episodes to five to three per week. And these days on Fridays, I have, co-hosts. And I thought, who better to co-host with me than listeners? So if you're interested in co-hosting with me on a Friday episode where we go through people's questions, it's very simple. Just go to somoneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh. There you can ask me a question, but you can also let me know that you'd like to co-host. I'm also pretty active on Instagram these days. People have been just messaging me there and I've been responding because it's my favorite social media right now. And so if you want to get in touch that way, I'm at Farnoosh Tarabi on Instagram. You can direct message me there and we will send you the calendar link so you can find a time to record with me. And today is a special day where we have a special co-host, a listener who's been with the show probably from uh, I want to say the beginning, but I'll let her share how she came to learn about the podcast and a little bit more about herself. But everybody, let's virtual round of applause for Danielle Robinson. Danielle, welcome to So Money. Thanks, Farnoosh. I'm a big fan of So Money. So excited to be on the show with you today. You're from Michigan, right? I am. Yes, I live in beautiful Lansing, Michigan. And tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, what do you do? What's your sitch? Sure. So I work for Jackson National Life Insurance Company. We're a retirement solutions provider, and I have a dual role with the company that I both oversee our corporate philanthropy, and I'm also the executive director of our Jackson Charitable Foundation, which has a mission to increase financial education across the U.S. So, of course, that's part of my interest in the podcast is all the great financial advice you give on the show. Um, And through our foundation, we offer free financial education that is geared toward kids age 7 to 12. And the program is called Cha-Ching Money Smart Kids. It's offered in classrooms around the country. Um, we're, we're really proud in our first year. We've reached about 1.5 million students. Um, but it's, it's similar to if you think of Schoolhouse Rock, how they had those videos that would teach you a little bit about English and grammar. Our Cha-Ching videos uh, teach kids about how to earn, save, spend, and donate. So it's a fun music video series. Have you ever heard of the Money Savvy Generation company? They make these piggy banks. I, I thought of them because you said save, spend, donate, invest. Yes. And that's exactly the four quadrants of their piggy banks. They have this award-winning money-savvy piggy bank. Susan Beecham is the founder, along with her husband, Michael. She's been on the show. She's a dear friend. I just thought natural fit if you haven't already connected with them. 
I know. And I love that. And I love um, the way that it's a real tangible reminder of those four things. And so, yeah, piggy banks are one of our, our favorite savings tools for sure. I think I suspect that why you are interested in money outside of the fact that you work in the money space is that your parents are accountants. You grew up probably with this uh, comfort around money talk, right? Or maybe I'm guessing. You're exactly right. So my both of my parents were CPAs, and growing up, my I, I love math, and I've always um, been interested in finance. Um, but my skills lied a little bit more closely in the um, communication side of the house. So I actually pursued a communications degree, and um, when I graduated from school and uh, met my hus- hus- soon-to-be husband, um, he was also a CPA. And so it's kind of a funny story that. I grew up with these two accountants and then married an accountant. And I, yeah, this definitely inspired in me an interest in that kind of work and felt grateful along the way that every time I had a money question, there was someone to turn to. And I think that's something that really inspires me in my professional career is that not everybody has someone to turn to when you have money questions. Well, you're absolutely right that it's not always a given that you'll have someone to talk to about money. You were very fortunate. And I bet your taxes are squeaky clean. Spotless, in fact. You'll never get audited. (laughs) Well, who knows? But, you know, my CPA husband has taught me that the IRS is no one to be afraid of, that they're really there to help you get it right. So anytime we get any kind of letter or question, he says, don't worry, they'll help us get it right. (laughs) Really? Well, that's optimistic. I do not share that sentiment, but that's because the IRS has sent me letters about how I've, for example, forgotten to claim a particular revenue stream and they were absolutely (laughs) wrong. They were absolutely wrong. I went to my Schedule C. I was like, there it is. And now, of course, it's my my problem. I have to follow up and everything's through snail mail. And I get really scared because I wonder, is it going to get there? Well, like, like, am I going to get another bill? Is this going to go on my... I mean, so that's just one example. But... And I just got a bill for like $7 from the city of New York for taxes. It's like, just, just, can you throw me a bone? $7. I mean, I'll pay it, but um, it just seems like more in postage. Yeah. Just add to next year, round it up or something. Anyway, uh, let's, let's help people. Speaking of, uh, we have a lot of questions to get through and I know that you come to the show with a lot of life experience and work experience. Hopefully we can help some of these folks out. So the first question is from Robbie and it is an audio question. He left it through SpeakPipe on the So Money Podcast website. As a reminder, if you want to leave a question, you can always type it in, but you can always also leave a voicemail. And I love listening to your voices. So here is Robbie asking a question about spending. I love these questions. Go, go, go for it, Robbie. Hi, Farnoosh. I recently discovered your podcast and became instantly hooked. Not only is it extremely informative, but very down-to-earth, soothing, and engaging. I was raised by a single mom of three with not much money, and now that I have an 18-month of my own, have a reasonably steady job, and 10 years of debt payment laser focus, I've paid off my student loans, eliminated my credit debt, bought my first house, bought my first new car, contribute monthly to tax-free savings, retirement savings, and education savings, Even with some extra spending money, I can't seem to spend a single cent on myself. That was a mouthful. I feel extraordinary guilt buying anything that I don't need per se, even if I can justify it as a business expense and not just a want. I even have the support of my wife, 
and even the Best Buy employee. I seem to be okay spending money on experiences, but anything material is a huge challenge. I know I deserve it, but it doesn't seem to be enough. Please help. Keep up the great work, Farnoosh. We'll be all here listening. All right, Danielle. It sounds like Robbie's having a little bit of a hard time justifying his spending. And as he mentioned, he grew up with a single mom. And I bet I bet probably feeling like money was scarce at times. And that's feeding into his mindset around money as an adult. It's not a coincidence, right, folks? We talk about our money mindsets and how as kids they were formed. It happens sooner than you think. Uh, your experiences inform so much of the way that you feel about money, the way that you relate to money. And Robbie's story here is a, is a classic example. And Robbie, thank you so much for sharing this question. I think a lot of us probably can relate to some extent. Danielle, do you ever feel uh, guilty or awkward or uh, unjustified in spending money on stuff? Yeah, I could totally relate to Robbie's question. And I think part of it is because I grew up in a household where my parents were really frugal. And so, you know, as, as a child, when I wanted something special or something extra, they usually would tell me to wait or save up. And so then as an adult, I have learned to always wait and save up almost to the point of oversaving. And so that is something that I've really worked on with my husband, Ryan, and I, we spend a lot of time talking and planning about our own goals and especially our savings goals. And it really helps me when I can confirm that either we're on track for the year to make our savings goal, or we've already reached our savings goal, that then I feel a little more free to use the rest of our money on things that we love and enjoy. And, you know, really that's part of the joy of earning a paycheck. If you can't enjoy your money, then, uh, What's I would say try, har- yeah. try harder. <laughs> I, try harder. I totally we- agree. I also think, um, you know, it's nice if you can really think a lot about your own personal values and what you what you appreciate and what's important to you and then try to line up your savings and, and then your spending with those values. And, um, you know, it might, it might help Robbie feel a little bit more at ease with the things he's spending on when they're really lined up with his values. It wouldn't hurt to have a budget, let's say, just for your miscellaneous expenses. And if you wanted to do this with your partner, your wife and say, look, each of us can maybe add like $50 a month to an account. That's our own account. And it's guilt-free spending. This is like dedicated to guilt-free spending. But I want to also highlight something else Robbie said, which I really like, which is that he said, I'm okay with spending money on experiences, but he says anything material is a huge challenge for me. And, And I get that. And honestly, Robbie... That's a fine way to approach spending. I think we know by now, right? The studies have shown that spending money on stuff, cars, clothing, technology, it's cool in the beginning. We enjoy it, but it has a limit. The the enjoyment factor, it diminishes eventually. And unlike experiences, those are the sort of gifts, those expenses that we give ourselves that just keep on giving because we create memories, we fortify relationships through these experiences. And studies show that experiences can actually increase happiness. So if you want to spend your money in a way to boost happiness, go to a Broadway show, take a yoga Mm -hmm. class, go on a vacation, learn how to play piano. Uh, So Robbie, I think that if that is actually your approach to spending, because A, that's what makes you feel good and B, that doesn't come with any guilt, you know, then then fine. But I get it too. You got to buy stuff. You know, you got to buy stuff to support your business. You need technology. Sometimes you need to buy stuff, services, things. And if you need to 
justify that and feel good about it, I would just say remind yourself of how that is going to off ultimately give you a return, right? So if you're buying, let's say, a laptop for your business, that's going to help to grow your business. It's going to help make your life easier, your job easier, more efficient. Um, if you're going to invest in, I don't know what else, like software for your business, it's all going to be a net positive in the end, if you know how to use it, if you know how to invest it properly. So having that frame of mind, I think can help. And you know, you can map it out. If you're someone who likes charts or spreadsheets, like you can say, okay, if, I, if this is going to cost me $500, you can extrapolate that say, well, in, in three months and six months in a year, I'll have made my money back and then some because you know exactly how to apply that to give yourself a return on that investment. All right. Next question is a question from Antonia. And this is perfect for you, Danielle. I don't think that Antonia knew that you were going to be co-hosting, but it's perfect timing. This question is about tax preparation. We're all in the midst of tax prepping right now. What's a reasonable price for an accountant to charge? Uh, she says that we're a pretty basic household. I'm a regular employee, so I, you know, I assume her taxes are taken out of every paycheck. Her husband is self-employed, so he has to do his own tax prep. Uh, so w- what would your parents say if you had to channel your husband or channel your parents? What would be their quick advice for Antonia? My first question for Antonia is, you know, she says her husband is self-employed, but I'm curious, is he a contractor or a consultant or does he own his own small business? Because that probably will make a difference. If he's working as a contractor, um, I'd encourage them to just buy some simple tax software off the shelf, like H&R Block for about 40 or 50 bucks. This kind of off-the-shelf tax software, um, tax preparation software has really come a long way. It's pretty user-friendly. That's how we do our taxes. And it's basically just a list of questions. And then the the software completes the return from there for you. And also, most of them come with free 24-hour helplines. So if you run into questions, help is just a phone call away. But I would say if her husband does own his own small business, then they probably do want to use an accountant to prepare their tax return. And I'd suggest seeking out a small local accounting firm rather than a large regional or national firm. With a local firm, they're really going to get more than just someone to prepare their taxes, but also they'll get some business advice and acumen and and an expert that they can draw on in the future. How much it might cost probably depends a lot on where they live, but um, here in Lansing, Michigan, um, I'd say anything, you could run anywhere from about $400 to about $1,200. Four hundred to twelve hundred dollars. That's a big range, but I will say that it's really about how much time at the end of the day this CPA is going to be spending on your taxes. So coming to the table prepared can go a very long way in saving time and money. Absolutely. If you've already, yeah, if you've been really organized all year, you've kept all your paperwork in an easy to access place. You've you know completed all the preliminary paperwork. For example, if your husband has had staffers, he's already issued 1099s to them f- for the money that he's paid them throughout the year. If um, if you can come to the meeting with that nice organized paperwork, I think that that is going to help you save a lot of money in the long run. And then it's going to help you also in the future down the road if at any reason you have to amend your taxes or do them again or refer back to them. It always helps to stay organized. Organization is very so money. Danielle, you make a good point is that don't assume you have to hire a person. Sometimes you could just get some software and they've definitely come a long way. All right. Connor's got a question. Why don't you... Danielle, let us know what's on his money mind. So Connor says, uh, my wife graduates from physician's assistant school soon with $100,000 in federal student loans. The lender recommends to pay interest 
first to avoid capitalization, but shouldn't we first pay the principal? Well, first of all, Connor, congrats to your wife. My sister works as a nurse practitioner, which is pretty similar similar to a PA, and she loves the work. So I hope your wife finds this career to be very fulfilling. Um, And when it comes to loans, I'd, I'd say, you know, usually you're right with the idea to pay off the principal, but with some student loans, there can be a point when the accrued interest becomes capitalized and then it's added to your principal. And once, once that happens, you have to pay the interest on the new balance, which is the principal plus the interest, or ultimately a larger number than you are originally loaned. So in this type of scenario, I would say it makes sense to pay off the accrued interest first. A little counter to what we hear generally about debt payoff, which is that, you know, the most, if you put more towards the principal, that's great because that'll knock down the balance. And then over the long run, you'll pay less interest. But in this case, we're talking about an unsubsidized loan. The sooner that you can address the interest, the better, because that's going to compound, that's going to accrue. And that's just going to, in some cases, amplify, increase your balance um, just because you sat on it. So uh, I think in that case, you're getting good advice. And I would also say that eventually when your wife, so when she graduates um, and she's looking at all of her loans and trying to figure out what's the best way to streamline this or make this easy, I would say look into consolidation. I would explore that because if for no other reason, this consolidation can help to keep the bill simple, one bill every month. And when you automate those bills, remember you can get a 0.25% interest rate reduction. When you pay your bills automatically, you sign up for auto pay, uh, you get that benefit. All right. Thanks, Connor. And good luck to your wife. Chitra has a question about a windfall, Danielle. I've never been on the receiving end of a, of a nice. other than maybe yeah. a, ta- a tax refund. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, it's, um, it's bittersweet. It's a family member who passed away, who left Chitra with a sizable amount of money. And she wants to know, what should I do with this money? Um, specifically, she says she's uncertain about what to do with it because she doesn't feel that she's very knowledgeable about personal finance. She has steady income. She has no debt. So that's good. But what should she do with it? I, I Personally, I don't think that she should feel this urgency to do anything right now because right now her life might not be calling for her to do much with it, right? Don't just do something to do something with it. Live your life. Think about what you want to do with your life in the next five years and the 10 years. And how can you leverage this windfall to get ahead, to seek out those opportunities? And then also maybe if this family member was someone who was special to you, close to you, really believed in you, what were the conversations that you had with this family member? What would he or she wished for you? And I'm not saying that's how you have to absolutely guide this decision. But if there is a nice way to pay homage to this family member for leaving you with this generous amount of money, if let's say this person really, really wanted you to pursue your dreams to start a business or pursue your dreams to switch careers, go back to school, get that degree, and you want to do these things, then maybe that's a nice way to invest this money. And I would say, think about this as how to invest it as opposed to how to spend it. How can you put this money to work so that it pays off and pays it forward? Yeah. Well, I, I like what you're saying about waiting a little bit. And I also like her question about how to increase her own personal finance knowledge. And so first of all, I think she's on the right track by listening to So Money and Farnoosh. But um, I also really like Money Magazine. I have a subscription and um, personally, I find their articles really interesting and relevant and easy to digest for someone who doesn't have a finance degree. 
And also I'd say that there are just tons of free online resources out there to increase your financial knowledge. For example, the company I work for has something we call the Financial Freedom Studio, which is a collection of articles and um, really by people in the financial and life planning space that can help along the journey of financial education. And so that's something you could check out at jackson.com backslash financial freedom, freedom studio. You mentioned money. And in fact, Adam Ariema, the, the editor-in-chief of Money, was on the podcast on Monday, coincidence. What was interesting, he said that a lot of their readers these days are millennials, are women. So it's not maybe the stereotypical, you know, I, I joked with him. I said, "What you know, this typical, the typical Money Magazine reader is like your grandfather smoking a pipe sitting by the fireplace. And he says that, you know, those readers are still alive and well, but increasingly it's the young women who want to learn about money. So that would be a great resource. I I concur. Uh, Lastly, you, you know, she said, you know, should I hire a financial advisor? And I think certainly that could be in your cards, but go to the advisor knowing what you want to do. Don't ever go to an advisor meeting without any sense of what you want your money to do for you because that's going to be the first question they ask. And a good advisor will ask that question. What's your, what are your goals? So come prepared and, and don't expect that this advisor is going to be able to have all the answers for you as far as how to spend this money. That is your prerogative and, and it's very personal to you. So I would say just take some time to, to reflect before investing the money, getting a team. But you know, I think that you're right. Chitra, using this time now to just educate yourself, listening to this podcast, other podcasts, Money Magazine, Danielle's link that she mentioned, which we'll put on our website as well. All of that, I think, uh, can go a very long way in getting you some answers. All right, let's round this out by answering Claire's question, Danielle. She has a question about retirement. And get this, Claire is 19 years old. Claire, you just made my week. The fact that you are not even eligible to drink yet, and you are interested in investing for your retirement. I think that's very commendable. What were you doing at 19, Danielle? Well, interestingly, a lot like Claire, I was thinking about the future, but it was only because I had a high school economics teacher who helped us uh, learn about the time value of money by having us all calculate how much money we would have if we invested in a Roth IRA and maxed it out each year for 40 years. And so amazingly, I had already opened a Roth at 19 um, and was starting to save. So I I relate to Claire a lot. All right. Well, you and Claire are outliers, I think. But we we are grateful for you as role models. So Claire says, should I invest first in my retirement account, I guess through work or maybe an IRA or index funds? Index funds are a low cost, low fee way to get into the market. And oftentimes index funds perform as well, if not better than a portfolio of diversified stocks. So she says that she makes $22,800. At least that was her paycheck last year. She's 19 and her monthly expenses are very low, $700 a month. She already has 6,300 in savings. I, I'm, I'm all for the Roth IRA at this point because she's young and she's making money. And then I would also say within that Roth IRA, Claire, look if you can in, invest in 
index funds. Danielle, what do you think? Yeah, I like that suggestion. And also, you know, if by chance she has an employer match on her 401k, of course, first I would max that out um, because that's free money. And then the other thing to think about is if Claire has some short-term savings goals, you know, she might consider a non-tax advantaged account like a CD um, or just a regular indexed fund. Um, the benefit with a CD is, of course, the principal would be protected from loss, Um and then with an index fund, of course, there's the potential for greater earnings, but your subject, your investments are subject to market fluctuations. Yeah, that 6300 in savings, Claire, I would take out what you need for the next six months, which may just be half of that. And then the rest I would put in something that's a little more high yield. Uh, you can find a lot of great online savings accounts with savings yields of 1% to 2% these days, depending on the balance on the starting balance, but you're going to grow that savings account. So uh, rather than just keeping it in a checking account or a bank account that's earning zero interest, why not get something for your money? Claire, thanks so much for your question and stick with us. I'm, I love that you're just 19 and you've discovered so many and that you're asking the right questions. I can't, I, well, can you come co-host with me, Claire? Get in touch. So moneypodcast.com. Danielle, thank you again for stopping by and tell us a little bit more about where we can find you. I know you mentioned some really good links. I want you to repeat them so that we don't forget. Thanks, Farnoosh. It's been a pleasure being with you. And so if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at doinggood365. And if you want to follow our foundation and get some more free financial education for kids, it's at JacksonFDN on Facebook and Twitter. And our website is chachingusa.org. Ching yeah. org. I love it. I can't believe that was available and you and no one else had that website and you snagged it. Good for you. Great, great. Danielle, thanks again. Everybody, I hope your weekend is so money. Mm-hmm.